I'm not entirely sure why, but when the preaching rotor came round a number of months ago, and we were invited by Doug to choose passages from the Being Human in a God-Shaped World series to speak on, my eye was instantly drawn to two of the passages, both stories about brothers. Stories of struggle and conflict, stories about God being able to use difficult situations for the promotion of his story. The stories of Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau. And maybe it's got something to do with being the younger brother, but both stories seem to resonate with me and I felt drawn to choose them. And as you may recall, I spoke early back in June on Cain and Abel, and so this morning it's the turn to have a quick look at part of the story of Jacob and Esau. My elder brother and I were very close when we were young, but when we became teenagers, our worlds drifted apart, and sadly, so did we. We argued and bickered, and on occasions, as brothers do, we fought, never viciously or violently, but as he was the elder, the bigger and the stronger than me, I did on occasions resort to slyness and underhandedness in an attempt to, well, level the playing field, as it were. Maybe that's why sly Jacob resonates for me, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's go back a little bit in time before our reading. Our reading picks up after the death of Abraham and focuses on his younger son, Isaac and Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Isaac's wife, like Isaac's mother, Sarah, is apparently cursed with barrenness. And it's interesting how many of the great women in the Bible struggled to have children. The exception, of course, is Mary, who the mother of Jesus, who probably started having children a little earlier than she had intended. But Rebecca, like her mother-in-law, Sarah, like Hannah, the mother of Samuel, like Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, struggled with the fact that they could not naturally fall pregnant. So would God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to make of him a great nation come to an end with Isaac and Rebekah? Isaac prays, and we suspect Rebekah prayed too. After 20 years of barrenness, of waiting, of praying, God intervenes. Isaac prayed for 20 years until Rebekah conceived. What is our natural response to the difficulties that we experience in our lives? Do we take matter into our own hands or do we continue to look to God for help? Are we prepared to continue to pray for something for 20 years without seemingly seeing any answer to our prayer? Do we have that faithfulness and that trust in God that he will move and answer our prayer even after that time? Or do we give up after only a few months deciding, well, if God hasn't responded by now, he never will do? How much time will we give God before we decide it's time to move on to something else. God loves to display his power 
in times of human weakness because it showcases his glory and his grace that meets our human need. And although Rebecca falls pregnant, we're told that her pregnancy is a difficult one. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening? She was experiencing a very painful pregnancy. Perhaps she was aware that she was having twins, but nevertheless, she went to ask of the Lord what is happening. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. By the time that Moses wrote these words about Rebecca's twins, the law of primogeniture was established. In law, primogeniture is the system of inheritance or succession by the firstborn, specifically the eldest son. In fact, Moses wrote about the inheritance rights of the firstborn in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. You with me? I'm going to ask questions later. <laughs> he must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all that he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. But in this case, however, God made it very clear to Rebecca that his blessing would fall on the younger and weaker child. Reminder to us perhaps that even though the fact is that you are God's person, doing God's will, even maybe only as a result of God's miraculous invention, that does not mean that the process will be easy. Indeed, the promises of God often bring with them great pain as well as great blessing. Eventually, soon after, Rebecca gave birth to the expected twin boys, and they were named Esau and Jacob. And Esau emerges from the womb red and covered completely in hair. He grows up to be a great and skillful hunter, an outdoors type of guy, a man of the open country. And we note that Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. Jacob, which means he grasps the heel, or figuratively, he deceives or cheats, comes out with his hand grasping hold of Esau's heel. And like his brother, Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. He was conventional, preferring the home comfort to the tents to the rough open countryside. And we find out later that he is clever, he's ambitious, and he's crafty. And we also note that Rebecca loved Jacob. So maybe whilst Esau was his dad's favorite, Jacob was a bit of a mummy's boy. The description of the twins and their parents set the stage for what is to come in the future. Two sons, two parents. Now each parent undoubtedly loved both sons, but they clearly each had a preference. 
family dynamics tend to be very subtle and hard to understand, let alone untangle. And back in those days, before the word dysfunctional found its way into the Hebrew dictionary, they spelt it out in quite simple terms. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And just as always in the case in family breakdown, especially Christmas Day on EastEnders, the real crunch time comes over something as trivial as a plate of food. Esau is famished. He's been working in the fields all day. He comes home and smells the red stew that his brother has been cooking on the stove and says, give me some of that red stuff. <laughs> Jacob says, it's not red stuff, it's beef bourguignon. And I've been cooking it all day and no, you can't have any. But why not, says Esau, I'm starving. Okay, says Jacob, I'll tell you what, you give me your birthright, make me heir to the family fortune, sign over all your inheritance to me, make me the older brother, firstborn in the family, etc., etc., and I'll give you some. This is where we first see the cunning and craftiness of Jacob. Undoubtedly, his parents had told him and Esau about God's prophecy before the twins were born, that the older shall serve the younger. And one commentator notes, the way that Jacob states his demands suggests long premeditation and a ruthless exploitation of his brother's moment of weakness. In response to Jacob's demand, Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What use is his birthright to me? Noticing that he now has the upper hand in bargaining for Esau's birthright, Jacob said, swear to me now. Come on, swear to me now. Jacob knew that Esau could not could easily go back on a verbal agreement, but he could not reverse a legally binding commitment. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. <coughs> and just like that, Esau relinquished his birthright to his younger, weaker brother. He ate some bread and stew, drank, got up and left. And the narrative ends with the words, so Esau despised his birthright. I suppose we could take as the moral to this story, never make any important decisions when you're hungry. But that's not what this story is about though, is it? It's not a lesson in how we can live more prudently any more than it's primarily a story about dysfunctional families. Ultimately, this is a chapter in a much larger story where the key character is God and where the focus of the story is God's promise. The promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac's father, Jacob and Esau's grandfather, that is being worked out through Jacob and Esau and perhaps despite Jacob and Esau. A promise that involves a subversion of the normal social order. The point of the narrative is that even though in a God-shaped world, neither of the human brothers are worthy of the grace of God, God nevertheless chose the younger instead of the older to be the recipient of his grace. The Apostle Paul explained God's sovereign neglecting grace this way in his letter to the Romans. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. 
yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God frequently chooses the weaker and the younger over the older and stronger. God chose Jacob over Esau, Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Joseph over his brothers, David over his brothers, and Solomon over Adonijah. And as one commentator notes, this trail continues into the New Testament when God chooses Jesus, born in a stable, raised in despised Nazareth, poor and lonely. And Jesus, in turn, chooses lowly disciples to be his representatives to the nations. By his sovereign grace, God has chosen and continues to choose his weak and despised people to be his victorious people. Here, as elsewhere in the biblical drama, God is in the process of turning things literally upside down. The first are being moved to the back and the last are coming up first. The older brother, who should have been set up for life as the inheritor of the estate and the new lord of the manor, is finding himself dispossessed by that cunning little fox and he still can't really believe it's his brother. But here it's all being turned upside down. He, God, has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble, as Mary would later say. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And it's not because Jacob is a great guy, a man of prayer and compassion, a man after God's own heart. No, Jacob is a heel, hence his name. But God remains true to his promises, despite the morally dubious character of some of us, his children. We can expect and rely on God to be true to his promises. We can expect and to rely on the coming kingdom. And this indeed is the ultimate promise of God. The promise that was being worked out through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. A promise that one day, all the world would be blessed through that descendant of Abraham, Jesus, when he comes in glory to usher in the new world. That's the promise that lies behind our story today. And it's the promise that we still cling to as we live out our part in that same story. That the day indeed will come, as we've just sung, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That the lion and the lamb will lie down. That every tear ultimately will be wiped away in that new world where death, the final enemy, will itself be destroyed. This is the biblical hope. This is the promise of God. This is the thread that runs through these scriptures, connects us back to these people of old, and which points us forward 
in hope to a new tomorrow. It's not a hope of short-term stability, it's a promise of a new world. My brother and I were later reconciled as a result of other circumstances and we're now closer than we ever have been. But what happened to Esau and Jacob? Was there ever any hope of a reconciliation between them? Was there any hope of a coming back from this act of betrayal and hurt? Well, as they like to say on television, come back in a few weeks' time <laughs> when Doug will be preaching on Genesis 33 and we'll find out. But in the intervening weeks, however, we will be learning more about Jacob and his walk with God as he plays his part in the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham as we discover more of what it is like to be human in a God-shaped 